Our Old Testament reading is going to come from three different passages. It's, it's going to shed light, as we always try to do, shed light on the New Testament reading, which will come from Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews 11, we're going to see about the faith of three Old Testament saints, uh, of Abel, uh, of Enoch, and of Noah. And so our Old Testament reading, starting in Genesis 4, and we'll then go to Genesis 5, and then to Genesis 6, will be intended to give you the background of each of those characters. And we'll start with Abel. Genesis uh, 6, oh, excuse me, Genesis 4, starting at verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the garden of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then Genesis 5, starting at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And then Genesis 6, starting at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. But I'll establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, if you would, please turn with me to Hebrews 11, to our sermon text. 
If you're using the Bible in your row, Hebrews 11, this text is found on page 1007. If you do not have a Bible or if you don't have a Bible that you find readable, we think this is a very readable, faithful version of the scriptures. And so you are welcome to take this home as our gift to you. This chapter sometimes is known as the Hall of Faith. It's, it's sort of a heroes of the Old Testament chapter. And for many people, it's, it's a favorite chapter in the Bible. And it's been that way through the history of the church. What's wonderful, though, about this chapter is it's filled with people who, for lack of a better term, were really pretty ordinary. You know, they, 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 they came from largely ordinary families. They lived largely ordinary lives. In fact, for some of them, if it weren't for this chapter in Hebrews, the things that we would remember most about them were their failures, were how they had, had failed at, at a number of things in life. But there's a message for us here, and that is that faithfulness is not just for religious elites. It's not just for people who grew up in the church and are 10th generation Presbyterians. It's for ordinary people who commit themselves to following and serving Christ by faith. We're going to look at three of them today. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And before I read God's word, let us pray. Lord in heaven, your word is a shining light, and we pray that you would open our hearts and shine that light into the recesses of it. For some, that you would bring us today to saving faith, others that you would renew a faith that perhaps has grown cold, and others you would strengthen, you would add fuel to the fire that burns brightly. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this... He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you've been with us for the last eight months or so as we've been studying the book of Hebrews, you know that Hebrews was written to a a group of, of folks that were raised Jewish, but they were converted to Christianity And now they are in great danger because of their faith. They once had been part of the social and religious in crowd. But now as followers of Christ, they're a fringe, marginal, persecuted group. And they're in danger. We saw it back in chapter 10. Some of them have had their property plundered. Others have already gone to prison for the sake of Christ. And they are in great danger. 
But the greatest danger they're in is not external. The greatest danger for them is internal. It's what's called apostasy, a word that means to depart from the faith. And that's what's been happening in this church is that some who outwardly appeared to be Christians by all counts, they've seen persecution, they've got tired, gotten tired of being on the fringes, and they're abandoning the faith. They're becoming apostate. And so the danger for the rest of them, the ones who remain, is that they would be so in love with this world and that they would be so devoted to walking by sight rather than by faith that they too would fall away. And the danger becomes all the more real because they look around and people who used to sit next to them in church a year ago or two years ago have now abandoned the faith. There are now empty seats. And chapter 11 is written to be a corrective. How do we guard against falling away? And the answer is by faith, by walking in faith. And if we want to remain faithful in times of danger, we have to, right now, before that trial comes, loosen our grip on this world and cling with both hands to the Lord Jesus by faith. It's fascinating to me how much our world loves to talk about faith, especially in TV and movies. How often, almost every movie, you're going to hear something like this. You just need to have faith. You need to keep the faith. You need to have just a little faith in yourself. You know, the faith that our world loves is always inwardly directed. It's, it's looking inside of ourselves for strength and for hope. But biblical faith is the exact opposite. It looks away from ourselves. It looks outside of us. There, there's a, a healthy sense of self-suspicion in the Christian, so we know that the answers are not found by listening to our hearts or looking inward or having a little more faith in ourselves. The answer is by looking outward and upward to the promises of God, which are ours in Christ Jesus. That's what Hebrews 11 has been emphasizing again and again and again for us, how faith is able to to pers uh, preserve us and cause us to persevere in even the worst of circumstances. Certainly it's one thing to hear that, but it's another thing to get illustrations of it, to get pictures of what faith looks like. And in this passage with Abel and Enoch and Noah, I think we get not three different pictures, but one picture in 3D. We get a three-dimensional picture. The more I studied this passage this week, I realized those three really do need to go together. I think that's what Hebrews intended is for us to, to take them as one three-dimensional picture of the faith. And in a wonderful way, as we look at Abel and Enoch and Noah, the author of Hebrews, and much more importantly, God is saying to us, you know, it really can be this way for you too. You see the great faith of, of Abel and Enoch and Noah and all these other saints of old and you can live that way too. You can live that way by faith. And so there's these three pictures, and each of them give us a different aspect of, of the one picture of faithfulness. With Abel, we see the way of faith. With Enoch, we see the walk of faith. With Noah, we see the work of faith. 
And that's what we're going to look at today. Let's look first at Abel, the way of faith. Now, Abel's first in this list, I think, in part because of chronology, but also because Abel is showing us the way into real, saving, authentic faith. You know, that takes us back to Genesis 4. Adam and Eve had these two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel was a shepherd, Cain a farmer. They both brought an offering to the Lord. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. Cain sort of brought what he could gather. It wasn't the first fruits. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's. Now, there's been, for, for thousands of years, a lot written about this, about why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. You know, every time I've studied this in the past, I, I've thought it, it's simply a difference between Abel had faith and Cain did not. It was, it was a heart issue. And that's absolutely true. There's nothing God cares more about than the condition of our hearts. Verse 6 makes clear that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so if, if God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, then Abel must have offered it by faith. But the more I've studied it in the last couple of weeks, I, I've reached a little bit of a, a different conclusion than I've ever had in the past. And I think it is that Hebrews again and again has been making the point that the way we come to God is not through the old covenant uh, shapes and types, but through the blood of Christ. Hebrews is a book about blood. And so it's very significant that we're referring to Abel's sacrifice here. I don't think it's merely that Abel had faith and Cain did not. I think it's Abel had faith in a Messiah who would shed his blood on Abel's behalf. And that faith was evidenced in him bringing a blood sacrifice. And you might say, well, how in the world would Abel have known that? The Mosaic law wouldn't be given for a couple thousand more years. I think the answer is he learned it from his parents. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they tried to make a covering for themselves? They, they tried to make fig leaves for themselves. What did God do right afterwards? Genesis 3.21, we're told the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. In other words, God sacrificed an animal as a covering for Adam and Eve. This is an early picture of a substitutionary sacrifice. God was foreshadowing for Adam and Eve a truth that would be further portrayed in the sacrificial system, fully portrayed in Christ, which is that the forgiveness of sins requires the shedding of blood. And so Abel uh, seems to understand, even as, as primitive as it was, either I must pay the penalty for my sins myself and suffer that death, or another can die in my place. He saw it. undoubtedly it was told to him in the story of his parents and now he teaches us the same that we can't approach God on our own terms we don't just muster up what we've got and come to God we come through a substitute Abel's a summary of what Hebrews has been teaching without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins Cain tried, and it didn't work. 
Now, in another sense, Abel's sacrifice didn't really work either. Uh, the sacrifice Abel brought, it was the blood of, of one of his lambs. That blood couldn't take away sin either. But it was a symbol. It was a picture of his need for forgiveness, his need of a substitutionary sacrifice. But what's Hebrews already told us? The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But what does it do? That whole Old Testament sacrificial system with the thousands and thousands of animals that were slain on the altar, it pointed to the one who would finally take away our sins. And so Abel is showing us that the way into faith is through Christ. We don't just make up how we want to serve God. We come to him on his terms and through his blood sacrifice for us. That's the entryway of faith. You don't come to God in a faith that you make up. You come to God as he has taught us in Scripture, through the blood of Christ. Now, that's an unpopular truth today, that there is only one way, and it's through Christ. But it's interesting, it's, we see it here. Cain and Abel is the story of our culture too, isn't it? You know, I mentioned people don't mind talking about faith as long as it's a generic faith, one that says, I'll come to God however I want to. But the Christian, on the other hand, just as Abel did, the Christian comes as God has shown through the blood of a sacrifice. And that, that difference leads to conflict between the believer and the world. Abel teaches us here that we, when we cling to the Lord Jesus as the only way, we're going to have conflict with the world. We'll get pushback from the world. Now, how did, how did Cain respond? Oh, you're right. I should have brought some blood. I'll go get some blood. I'll be right back. No, he murdered his brother. And really, his anger wasn't at his brother. His anger was at God. Because he should have brought a proper sacrifice, but he didn't. And he took it out on his brother. And, and, and beloved, the world will do the same. They know that what they do is wrong. And they will take it out on you and me at times. Now, why didn't Cain just bring the right sacrifice? Why didn't he say, you're right, I should have gone and, 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 and gotten the blood? Why didn't he just say, will you forgive me? It requires something Cain didn't have. And that was humility. You know, Sadly, so much of what people do in religion, even for professing Christians, is actually aimed at not having to ask God for forgiveness. That's what Cain's doing. He's bringing a sacrifice to get God off his back, to appease God, maybe to get God's favor. But he's not willing to stoop and ask forgiveness. Flannery O'Connor has a great book called Wise Blood. And there's a, a character named Hazel Motes, and Hazel grew up under the gospel preaching of his preacher grandfather. But Motes refused to seek forgiveness from Christ, and he thought the, the key to it, the way I'll avoid having to humble myself and ask forgiveness for my sins is to be a really good person. And, and O'Connor has this amazing line about Motes. She says he didn't need to hear it, and she's talking about 
the blood of Christ. She says there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. In other words, if I'm a good person, I won't have to come and ask forgiveness. That's exactly what Cain is trying to do here, and that is what many people are doing this very morning. They are checking boxes so that God is not mad at them, and yet they have never come through the way of faith, seeking forgiveness for their sins, clinging to the blood of Jesus as their only hope. The way of faith requires humility because I cannot make myself presentable to God. Another had to die for me. That's humbling to say, and especially humbling when we realize that the one who died is the sinless Son of God, who the one human who did not deserve death took it on, who hung bloody and battered upon a cross, accursed by the whole world. He did all of that for me and because of my sin. The way of faith requires that we come first through the blood of Jesus. And we learn that from Abel. Well, if Abel teaches us the way of faith, Enoch is going to teach us the walk of faith. That's the second thing we see here, is the walk of faith. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And this is going back to Genesis chapter 5, where you find just a very brief account that I read earlier of, of Enoch's life. And Enoch is there wedged into a long genealogy. It's the genealogy of the descendants of Adam. And the remarkable thing about that genealogy is how unremarkable a lot of the names are. You've read them there, and you know nothing else about them. And what happens, the rest of that formula is we get a name, an age, who their son was, and it ends with, and he died. That's the repeated refrain. But in the midst of that very unremarkable list of names, we see something remarkable, and that is Enoch walked with God. Uh, Genesis 5.21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Twice in those three verses, we're told Enoch walked with God. And when the thrice holy God tells us something twice, we ought to pick up our ears and listen. Enoch teaches us that the faith, that walking in faith is not nearly about knowledge or ritual or showing up. It's about daily intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, to mix our illustrations, going back to Cain, Cain went through the motions of religion. He, he scrapped together a sacrifice. He had ritual. He showed up. But his faith didn't please God. Enoch, on the other hand, loved God. He walked with God. And, and it's amazing because he's in the midst of this family tree that is sort of increasingly spiraling towards the judgment that would come in the time of the flood. You meet Enoch, this man who delights to be in the presence of God himself. That's what makes him stand out. We're not told of anything he accomplished he didn't lead an army. He didn't build an ark. He didn't, we don't know of anything except he just walked with God. 
And the world is not too impressed by that resume, but such a life pleases God. And what could be more important than that? Than than to receive the commendation of God himself. Look at verse 6 for a moment. Without faith, it's impossible to, to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That was Enoch's heart. God, I just want to be close to you. I just want to be near to you. You know, that's a, that's a real difference than, God, I just, I just want to kind of appease you and get you off my back like Cain was doing. But we're also susceptible to it, aren't we? Simply going through the motions without really walking with God. I, I, I serve on a committee that examines men for ordination. They, they come through our committee to be examined. And one thing, after seven years of chairing this committee, one thing I know is that men can be really good at memorizing answers and cramming for a test. And some of them get all the answers right. But there's others that it is just evident have been in the presence of God. That's where they are most at home, is in the presence of God. And the answers are not textbook answers, they're experiential answers. They're the ways that the Bible has been incorporated into the depths of their soul. And when they speak, it's kind of like John Bunyan. It was as if you cut him, he would bleed Bible. That was Enoch. He loved to spend time in the presence of God. What's the reward for doing so? It says there in in verse 6 that he rewards those who seek him. What's the reward? You know, when we walk with God, the reward is God himself. He draws near to us. There's some in here who probably hear that and they say, yes, there are probably people who have that kind of nearness to God, who live with that kind of intimacy, but not me. I, I read the Bible. I pray. But it's not intimate. And I think we can be a bit cynical about it as if God's holding out on us, perhaps because of our past some trauma in our life or some sin that we've committed or some, something about our personality, many of us think God is sort of stingy in giving us himself. He's not. You know, I think for m- most of us, maybe all of us, the reason we don't experience that sort of nearness, that intimacy with God, is because we don't seek him with our whole hearts. Jeremiah tells us, seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that's what verse 6 is saying, that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And for most of us, our our seeking is not wholehearted. We can be so easily distracted. We can care about so many other things more than our relationship with Christ. You know, that was the problem of the Pharisees. They had all the truths. They stood six inches from the Son of God incarnate and could not see it. 
They did it all to be seen. And what did Jesus say to them about their reward? You've already received your reward. It's the praise of men. It's a comfortable life. It's luxury. It's the respect of your peers. But God says, believer, when you seek me with all your heart, I am your reward. The psalmist would say, the Lord is my portion. He's what I desire. And that's the problem that's confronting so many of these Hebrew Christians that, that are receiving this letter. They want to go back to that comfortable life. You have to think of Demas, don't you? Paul tells Timothy, Demas, Demas used to be a traveler, a missionary with Paul, and he deserted him. And Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has abandoned me. And that's what's happening with this church. They're desiring an earthly reward. They want to be accepted. They want to be comfortable in culture. Do you realize that when Christ is your chief reward, your chief desire, he gives himself to you as your reward. He gives himself abundantly to you. And Enoch had that. He walked with God in this incredible way. And God offers himself to all who, like Abel, come through the blood of Christ, like Enoch, who long to walk with him, who, who see the chief priority of their life being to walk with this God. It's neat because you see this for, the normal formula that happens in the genealogy, but then you get to Enoch, and it doesn't say, and he died. We're told he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. This is an area, again, of a lot of discussion among students of the Bible, and we're not likely to to settle it here. Enoch, like Elijah, was somehow translated directly to heaven, escaping the bonds of death. Beyond the fact that Enoch never died, I don't think there's really anything we can do to speculate exactly what happened. But we do realize this. When you walk closely with God as Enoch did, and you spend so much of your life in the presence of God, in a sense, you already have heaven on earth. The Puritan John Trapp said, Enoch changed his place, but not his company. He had already spent his life in the, before the face of God. On earth he did as he walked with God, now in heaven. So he changed his place, but not his company. When we walk with God on earth, then heaven is very near. But be warned, beloved, if we do not walk with God on earth, we do not live with God in heaven. But when we walk with God, in a sense, all of life, becomes heavenly because we learn to do natural things spiritually and spiritual things naturally. And we begin to live our lives quorum Deo before the face of God. Significant to the Hebrews is that Enoch's life was a, it was a life of persevering faith. Some of the Hebrew Christians had been believers for just a few years, and they're starting to fall away. Maybe a few decades, even, but they're falling away. Enoch walked with God 300 years. Now, when Genesis talks about these extraordinary lifespans of of the early humans, Enoch living to be 365 years old, you know what it really means, right? 
We're, we're not fools, right? We, we know what it means. It means Enoch lived 365 years. Don't try to be smarter than God. If it says in Scripture that he lived 365 years, then he lived 365 years. And he walked with God for 300 of those years. What's the message for us? If you want persevering faith, then you must walk with God. If your faith is simply rooted in perhaps a decision you made 50 years ago, or the social group that you spend time with, or in what you do for God, but not in time spent with God, your faith will not persevere. But faith that is rooted in walking with and fellowshipping with God It receives the same pressures and endures the same dangers as others. And it is strengthened through them. And God becomes even more precious through it. So Enoch teaches us the walk of faith. And then third, Noah teaches us the work of faith. I want you to put yourself in Noah's shoes for a moment. God says to Noah in the account that I read earlier, You know, Noah, I I know you live out here in the middle of dry land. But I want you to build a boat, not like a 17-foot whaler. It's going to be about 500 feet long, 50 feet or so high. But I don't want you to build it near the shore. Have you ever seen those videos before of how the massive ships are launched? They're built right at the shore in a building that's made for just dumping them into the water. God says to Noah, I'm going to actually have you build this way away from shore. I'll bring the shore to you. Don't you worry about that. And it's going to take you years, and it's going to be expensive. And, uh, you know, everybody's probably going to laugh at you. They're going to think you have absolutely lost your mind. By the way, all those same promises are pretty much uh, repeated by the Lord Jesus in Luke. You follow me, it's going to be costly. It's going to cost you your life. Everybody's going to think you've lost your mind. But that's what it is to walk by faith. And we're told Noah believed God and acted on it. Uh, Faith obeys God. Even when what he calls us to do does not make sense to us or when it's not what we want to do. But that's what all of Hebrews 11 is about. People walking by faith when they can't understand or see the immediate payoff. The immediate way that it's all going to end. Abraham, I want you to sacrifice the child of promise. You know, the one that I've promised you would be the descendant through whom your your descendants would number more than the stars in the sky and the sands in the sea. I want you to kill that one. Gideon, I want you to fight the Midianites, but I'm going to decimate your army first. And to these Hebrew believers, I want you to cling to Jesus. Cling to Christ, even when the world says they will kill you for it. You cling to Christ. The Christian faith must be an obedient, working faith. Now, to be clear, we've already seen this. We're not saved by works by any stretch. But those who are saved will work to the glory of God. Look with me at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is our sort of quintessential grace alone passage. Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a walk of obedience. You and I, day after day, are confronted with opportunities to work to the glory of God. And some days that may look like really going out on a limb, witnessing to somebody that you know is, 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 has animosity towards the gospel. It, it may look like a mission trip to the other side of the world. Most of the time it's going to look like an ordinary exercise of daily obedience to God, even in the face of a world of flesh and a devil that want to cause you to go in the other direction. We have a, a working faith. Just a word to those who profess to be Christians, who know all the nuances of theology, who, who can quote Scripture well. What's it doing in your life on a daily basis? 175 members here at First Scott's, Beaufort ought to be substantially different because of you. As you go out into your neighborhood and into your families and into your workplaces, it ought to change the landscape of Beaufort because you as a people are to be declaring the gospel to a lost and dying world. There ought to be aspects of your day that are filled up with the work of ministry. Well, listen, Pastor, you're the paid professional. Yeah, my job. Pastor Walton's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To profess Christ ought to overflow through your life to a lost and dying world as you share the gospel, as you serve your neighbor, as you worship your God. And if you can look at your life and say, you know what, I, I don't really see any difference in the way I live, the way I spend my time than my unbelieving neighbor, then you need to inspect why your faith is not a working faith. Why, like Abel, are you not willing to give the first fruits? Why, like Cain, are you giving what you can scrap together to God? Well, I mentioned earlier these three portraits of faith go together as one three-dimensional picture, and that's really important because the reason is sometimes we get it out of order and we think that works are the way into faith. Some of you were raised in a Catholic background. In Catholicism, you, you do enough works, you are sanctified enough to finally be justified. The biblical understanding, the biblical gospel is that you are sanctified and therefore you are saved, you are justified, and therefore you do works. It's not the other way around. You get that backwards and you have forsaken the gospel. And so real faith starts with Abel's. Abel's faith, the way into the faith is through Christ. I have a great need of a Savior and I have a great Savior to meet that need. And then I look at this God and I think, if he would give his own son for me, you know, can't I trust him for everything? Can't I trust him day after day? And and then a, a faith like Enoch's who walks with God, a living faith that sees God as the most intimate of friends. He extends that to you if you're in Christ. 
you know, within the bounds of friendship, we typically have a desire to love and serve and please our friends. We, we love to do things that bring them joy, and it typically grieves us if we grieve our friends. And the closer we are to them, the more their smile tends to bring us joy. When we begin to love the smile of God more than the applause and the comforts of this world, then we begin to live our lives in service to him. We begin to live lives that are pleasing to him. Enoch loved the smile of God because God was his friend. And then we come to a faith like Noah's. You know, I can trust this God. Even when he calls me to do things that I don't feel like doing or that are hard or that are costly or are just plain strange, I can trust this God. It's a faith that, that works because we love this God. And more importantly, I know that he loves me and he would never leave me astray. So what makes sense? It makes sense for me to trust and obey him. And that's the point of all this chapter. The pastor's saying again and again to his beloved flock, you see the danger. The only answer is to cling to Christ. The key to persevering in the faith is not to say, I could never fall away. Pride goes before the fall, doesn't it? And a haughty spirit before destruction. The way not to fall away is to spend your life nurturing and feeding your faith, studying the word, spending time in prayer, so that this God becomes more dear to you than even the closest of your earthly friends. How do we apply this text? Let me speak to our children. Children, God offers himself to you in an incredible way in the gospel. He extends friendship to you. And he says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. You've probably grown up with a life where that is all you've ever known, and it has been easy to follow him, and that can sometimes lead to complacency. But it's not always going to be that way. Some of you are going to go to college. Some of you are going to get jobs where your faith is going to be under constant assault. And if you're thinking, I'll take my faith seriously then, it will probably be too late at that point. Uh, take your walk with Christ seriously now. Devote your time, your energy, your thoughts to following him now so that when those trials and temptations come and, and would tempt you to be pulled away, instead you cling to Jesus because that faith is already ready to stand the test. So children, seek Jesus now. Second, just an encouragement to those who came to faith later in life, and that's one of the wonderful things about this church is we have a number of people who came to faith in adulthood. And some of you, you spent your whole life in church. You did what you were told. You gave when, when you were told to give. You stood when you were told to stand. You sat, all that stuff. And then one day you, you realized, I have never walked with God. I have never really met this God. I, I know I know him in my head, but... I've always kind of had a hand up to him. I'm just trying to get him off my back. And you realize, no, 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 that's not the way to God. The way to God is faith and repentance. Enoch can be the patron saint of those who came to faith later in life. It says he was 65 years old. 
when he started walking with God. That's when he had Methuselah. Those of you who have kids understand how it makes you see your sin and your need of a Savior, doesn't it? And sometimes you just need to pray because that's what make children make you do. But, but Enoch started walking with God late in life. And sometimes you and I can use that as excuses. Well, I, I didn't grow up in Sunday school. I didn't have all the benefits that other people had. And you feel like you're a B-team Christian, a JV Christian. That's not true. Enoch, his place in the hall of faith here in Hebrews 11 shows us that, that there is no such thing as a B-team Christian. He walked with God and God was pleased with him. And so that's a good word to those of you who came to lay life later. And then, finally, just a call to self-introspection, to self-examination. Are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? It does no good to, to simply satisfy yourself outwardly by saying, sure I am, I'm here in church, aren't I? Do you know this God? Do you walk with Him? Is He a friend? one that you trust, one that you're growing in and, and you know better and better day after day. And, and the more time you spend with him, the more wonderful you realize he is. And you start to say, wow, I cannot believe that a God like that would befriend someone like me. Inspect your life. Is that your, is that your heart? Or are you here just to check boxes and to, to grow in status with the world? That's Cain's reward. That's the hypocrite's reward. The reward for the Christian is knowing and walking with God. And this he gladly gives you. So look to him by faith. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we ask that, God, I pray that we as a congregation would be a people who really walk with you. that we really walk with you, that we really follow you. That we're not simply getting you off our back by making sacrifices or approaching you just in the way that pleases us, but that we are following you as you've taught us in your word and that through that, that it's cultivated a sweet fellowship, sweeter than any friendship even in our homes, even in our lives. Lord, help us towards that end. Make that, if we don't have that as our experience, at least make that our desire. And we know that when we seek you with all our heart, we will find you and you will be our great reward.